you turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, as we do our scripture reading for the evening. This is going to set, this verse is going to set the uh, foundation for the rest of the study tonight. Just one verse. Colossians 1.13, he, referring to Christ, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom, I'm sorry, of his beloved son. That's the Father's work. We give thanks for the, your word as it is given to us. And just pray your blessing on each person here as we hear your word. And just ask your blessing on Ben as he brings that word to us, that you bless him abundantly as you give him a clear mind as he brings that to us and just bless us all through his word that he gives to us. And pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The message tonight is titled, Ambassadors for Christ in this Present Age. Colossians 1.13 describes us whom Christ has delivered. He has called us out. Another way of looking at that is he has undeceived us from the domain of darkness. So we now have a spiritual ability to see things that we didn't see before. We have an ability to know things and comprehend things that we didn't before. We have a relationship with the Holy Spirit that we didn't have before. So if we see the church today, it exists side by side with the world. If the world is here and the church is here, and we're this close together, and we intermingle at times in society, conflict is going to be unavoidable. The light that we have through the Holy Spirit will shine in the darkness, and that darkness the world hates. These two always follow each other in that order. So the light shines in darkness. And the world hates that darkness. An example of this, I don't know if you've read this or seen this, with Pastor Doug Wilson in Indiana University back in 2012. He went into a secular college and he lectured on Christian sexual ethics. And he's in a pit class, so he's standing down and everybody else is seated higher than he is. So you can see the response of the crowd. Many people responded very disrespectfully. Many people responded with a lot of hate. Some screamed, some laughed. Others protested loudly. Many just simply walked out of the auditorium. So what we're used to as Christians is that if we study church history, so for the past 1,800 years, Christianity has had a major impact on Western society, especially in American and European cultures. Most of our universities here in the States have been founded by Christian men. So when we see concepts of the biblical God, moral absolutes, orthodox biblical teaching, we read history, this seemed to be the foundation of what our country was based upon. So today, for the first time since iniquity, antiquity, Western Christians live largely in a non-Christian society. So we're seeing for the first time now secularism, becoming much more prominent and much more prominent as the days go on. 
The sharp contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness is becoming more and more obvious. It's becoming more and more apparent. The tension between these two, between the church and the world, is escalating. This is the culture in which we spend the majority of our time, if we think about it, if we're out shopping, if we're at work, if we turn on the television for the news, if we're on the internet, if our children's go to, kids go to public schools. We're interacting with this secular society more and more now on a daily basis. So the Christian culture that used to be, so we say, it can become an idol for many of us. It can cause us to continually look back to yesterday, to misplace our energy, our focus, and our ambition. By trying to bring back the past and neglecting the time at hand, by becoming frustrated and angry because of the way how things are going, and to be motivated by this frustration rather than by living a life of grace and peace. So it can become an idol to us. It can bring in a spirit of bitterness within us that we look back to either the founding or to the Puritan era or to the Reformation. We see how society was then, and then we compare that and contrast that to today. That can become a root for bitterness in our lives, and it can affect our Christian walk. So what we're seeing here is the tension that exists between the domain of darkness and between the kingdom of God comes down to one word. What causes this tension? Sin. There are many categories. There are many subcategories. There are many political terms we can use to divide up different demographics, divide up special interest groups, and map it all out and see who votes what where. It comes down to one simple word. The problem that we have in this struggle as we wrestle with the domain of darkness comes down to sin. So our focus then, as people, as Christians, as God's elect who he has called out of this domain of darkness, our focus is on two things. First of all, our focus is on the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Our treasure is in heaven, not upon the temporal, not upon this moment. Second, the manner in which we represent the king. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says this, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. The manner in which we conduct ourselves reflects upon the one whom we serve. When the world sees us, this is always a question we should be asking ourselves, when the world sees us, do they see Christ? That will bring conviction. When the world looks at us, do they see Christ? We must take careful consideration onto how we present ourselves to individuals in this current society. It is easy to get caught up in the spirit of this age, and it can easily impact our witness in two ways. One, like I mentioned, out of anger and bitterness, to become provoked and then return insult for insult, to view those who are outside of the church as the enemy. So if we're viewing somebody as the enemy, what are we not going to do? We're not going to evangelize, are we? We're not going to love. We're going to walk around in anger. We're going to walk around in frustration. These are the people we're supposed to be showing the love of Christ to. But we have this bitter root inside of us that affects our witness. Second thing, we can lose the gospel through social pressure. Compromising on doctrine for the sake of happiness and unity. Or by remaining silent out of fear and rejection. So there's certain areas where this tension that we feel with this domain of darkness can take us that is not biblical. 
We have to keep examining ourselves to make sure that these aren't the paths that we're going down, that we're not carrying this root of bitterness with us, that we're not compromising the gospel, either out of silence or out of changing our fundamental beliefs. So if you turn with me to Acts chapter 1, verse 6, we see confusion over the kingdom. We see Jesus about to ascend into heaven, but the disciples have a question that they want to ask. So we can go all the way back to Acts and we can see this confusion that exists within the kingdom, about the kingdom. Acts chapter 1 highlights an interesting aspect of how the disciples were thinking that I think we fall into so many times as well. In verse 6 it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So notice this question is not just coming from one or two of the disciples. It's coming from all of them. Three whole years the disciples were walking with Christ. Jesus was teaching them about the kingdom. And yet they display their ignorance once again. How? They ask him about the kingdom, but not about the heavenly kingdom. They're asking about an earthly kingdom. A kingdom where the external things of this world are in view. Specifically, a carnal Israel that dominates the world scene and abounds in wealth and glory. Their focus was still on the here and now. The disciples did not understand the nature of the kingdom Christ was about to establish, in spite of all the teaching that they had received and heard. This should be a red flag and a warning to all of us as well, in particular with our struggle on the focus of the kingdom. Not just understanding the times and the seasons in a theological sense, but also in a practical sense, as we bring biblical teaching of the kingdom of God into our daily lives. As we incorporate the fact that Christ is king right now, how does that impact me right now? What has Christ commanded me to do right now? Not in an earthly sense, but in a spiritual sense. Jesus said this in John 18, 36. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. So notice where the focus is supposed to be. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus goes on to correct the disciples by explaining to them that the nature of the kingdom is spiritual. It's not material. Just about the time Jesus was to ascend, the disciples, they're filled with ambition. They're filled with curiosity. They're expecting Jesus to usher in the kingdom, to overthrow the Roman government. They're ready to rule and reign with him. But in verse 4, what does Jesus command them to do? He commands them to wait. I think that's one of my least favorite words. <laughs> wait. Right? We want action. We want now. We want to be right here. We want to be moving. He's telling them to wait. Wait for what? The promise of the Father, which was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So in other words, Jesus' answer to the question about restoring the kingdom to Israel is grounded in his resurrection it's grounded his, in his ascension and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is how the gospel and his kingdom will spread beyond the boundaries of Jerusalem, beyond the boundaries of Samaria, beyond the boundaries of Syria, all the way over to the known world. Not by material means, not by flesh and blood. The Holy Spirit uses faith to bring grace down into the human soul to destroy the power of sin within us. 
Notice what we just mentioned 10 minutes ago. What's the problem between the domain of darkness and the kingdom of God? Sin. What is it that the Holy Spirit does when he indwells us? He conquers the power of sin within us. This is how Christ is advancing his kingdom. It is by faith that believers come to possess the kingdom of God. God's redemptive solution would not come by political revolution. It would not come by physical war. The primary battle is fought and won in human hearts. There's a certain type of temptation, a temptation to think that we are to do the Lord's work by utilizing the world's methods and the world's standards. We develop this kind of American pragmatic approach. We see what the world's doing. We see how that's successful. We incorporate some of that in to help advance the kingdom of God. We have good intentions, but we're laying aside doctrinal principles for practical results. We start to get our, our, our kingdoms mixed up. Yeah, we have good intentions, but the methodology that we use is not according to Scripture. We want to bring in the kingdom of God by utilizing the same methods the world does, but try to bring glory to God this way. Now, interesting, there is a place and there is a responsibility for political involvement. We're not saying that politics is bad. Yes, we are Christians. Yes, we are to vote. Yes, we should run for office. Yes, we should get involved in schools. All of these things are good things, but here's the thing. Always keep in mind how easy it is to make an idol and to replace the kingdom of Christ with the kingdom of this world. So we are commanded to be responsible citizens, to do our civic duties. Those are good things, but that can't get intermixed. That can't become an idol. That can't become the means by which we think we're going to transform society. Moral, moral reform will not come by the means of a ballot box. Only the Holy Spirit can take the gospel to the hearts and to the minds of men. Imposing our will through well-intended selfish ambition will not advance the kingdom. Adopting worldly methodologies or simply adopting what has worked for the world and turning around and using it for the glory of Christ doesn't advance the kingdom. The Lord will advance his kingdom the way he sees, the way he desires. We must be aware that our worldly ambition and our worldly desire can actually hinder our witness and hinder our focus on the kingdom. So three main points this evening. First main point, what is the nature of Christ's kingdom? Jesus is a king who conquers by suffering, death, self-denial, and serving others. There is no other kingdom, nor has there ever been any other kingdom like this. If we look throughout history, have we ever seen a king take over a nation like this? Have we ever seen worldwide conquest by a king who suffers, self-serving, those type of aspects? Have we ever seen it? Oftentimes we need to examine ourselves. What type of king do we admire? What type of king gains our respect? What type of king would we rather brag about and follow? Are we in awe of a king like Alexander the Great? Or are we in awe of a king like Christ? From the world's perspective, Alexander the Great is probably one of the most successful kings who ever lived. He was personally taught by Aristotle at age 16. In 15 years of conquest, he never lost a battle. He named more than 70 cities after himself. He had the known world conquered by age 32. And his achievements have been taught by all generations ever since. Is that the type of king that we admire? Is that the type of king that we want to follow? 
Do you believe that Christ is more worthy of imitation than Alexander? And I believe everybody this evening in here would say yes. Christ is by far superior to Alexander. Then this is, if this is true, if you truly believe this, then you will act in love towards your enemies and not out of hate. You will return love and grace rather than evil for evil. You will be patient when you're wronged. You will seek to be the servant rather than the boss. You will put others before yourself. You will seek to be last rather than first, humble rather than popular, harmless rather than dangerous, and you will pursue God's will in all things before your own will. So if we're going to examine ourselves, who do we really, yes, we confess, we have faith, we're saved, but there's aspects in our life that can gravitate towards worldly desires, worldly wisdom, practical results that we have to examine within our own hearts. What type of king do we really truly follow? What type of representative of the king are we going to be? Are we going to be an accurate ambassador, an accurate representative of Christ and his methods, or are we going to resemble the world's methods, the world's way, but some put some type of Christian bow over it for practical results? So the question is, how did Jesus usher in his kingdom? Jesus being co-equal with the Father, condescended to us by taking on a human nature in order to suffer and in order to die in our place. So if we look at history, where in history do we see a king who voluntarily became a slave in order to redeem his own people? Where in history do we see a king who voluntarily took a towel, washed his disciples' feet? Where in history do we see a king come and die in the place of a bunch of criminals? See, we have something that's completely, completely different than the world's standards and the world's systems. Christianity is completely opposite of, way, of the way the world thinks. That's why 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, Paul talks about the world seeing Christianity, seeing the cross as foolishness. That's why when we're preaching the gospel to people, we should actually expect to be laughed at. Because to the world, it is foolishness. But to those who have been redeemed, to those who have been enlightened, to those have been, who called out of that domain of darkness, who have been undeceived, we see it clearly. And that is the example that we are to represent. So what we're seeing here is there is no kingdom of God without death. There is no kingdom of God without self-denial. And there is no kingdom of God without suffering. Luke 9.23 said this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Romans 6.4, we were buried with him by baptism into death. Romans 6.6, 6, know this, that our old man was crucified with him. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This is the king whom we serve. These are the methods that he has prescribed us to follow. So what are the characteristics of this domain of darkness that we see? It's not too hard. It's pretty self-evident. The world system is man-centered. Man is the standard of all things. Man decides his own truth, his own reality, what is right and what is wrong. Selfish ambition. Man does not first seek what the Lord wants. He doesn't even care what the Lord thinks. He just goes after what he wants. Man is not heavenly-minded, but earthly-minded upon the temporal, upon the here and now. Number three, this world's characteristics, autonomous. 
Man desires to be completely separate from God, completely separate from history, completely separate from any type of moral standard but their own, any type of creed, any type of confession, and desires to make up his own reality independent from any institution or from any authority. So the average human being today, I am the captain of my own destiny, especially we see that here in the States very clearly. No authority over them. They will be their own person. There's a caveat to that one. As long as they're not hurting somebody else, that's generally what the world will teach. As a believer, our struggle comes in a more subtle form. Like the disciples did on many occasions, we too can confuse the two kingdoms. We can bring what we see and observe from the world and try to place it to the world around us. We see this in several examples. Turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Verse 54, the context here in the background of Luke 9:54 is the Samaritans reject Christ. So as the Samaritans are rejecting Christ, the disciples, particularly James and John, start to think amongst themselves. And they go up to Jesus and they say, when his disciples James and John saw it, and that was the Samaritans rejecting Christ, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And he turned and he rebuked them. Now let's be honest with ourselves. When we see sin today, every time we turn on the news at night or every time we see it on Facebook, do we get this type of feeling within us? James and John, out of self-righteousness, out of a prideful attitude, call for judgment upon the Samaritans rather than wanting to pray for their salvation. What is our first reaction towards those who we see mocking the gospel? Do we want justice or do we want to show grace? If we're honest with ourselves, I think there's times where we're going to see in our hearts that we want justice. What has God demonstrated to us, us believers, those who are saved? Has he demonstrated his justice to us or has he demonstrated his grace to us? He demonstrated grace. And without that grace, we wouldn't be sitting here tonight. So do we have any right to turn around and want justice like James and John did here in Luke chapter 9? Why would we want to bring judgment down on those who have not believed? Because if we're honest with ourselves, at one time we were just like them, enemies of the cross. We could go back in time five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago, but go back in a time where you yourself may have been an enemy of the cross, where you would not have seen yourself sitting here tonight. Fast forward to today, it's by God's grace that you are. Now how is it that we're to conduct ourselves as ambassadors of Christ, showing forth judgment, showing forth anger, fighting evil with evil, or with grace? It's by grace, it's through the means of, by faith, grace through faith that Christ is advancing his kingdom. Second one, we're already in Luke. Just turn over to Luke chapter 22. We see the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. And this is one of many Peter's famous scenes where he doesn't get it right. In Luke 22, verse 49, Jesus is being arrested. Peter said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? One of them, and we know it's Peter from different accounts, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said no more of this. And he touched his ear 
touched his ear and he healed him. So by Peter trying to save Jesus from going to the cross, Peter has practical thoughts going through his mind right now. He's thinking he's going to save Jesus from this. This can't be happening. He's relying on his own wisdom and his own abilities. He's going he's to save Jesus. He's going to advance the kingdom in his own method, in his own manner. That's what's going through Peter's mind right now. What actually happens is he becomes a hindrance to the kingdom of God. He's not helping it. He acts impulsively. He acts reactionary. God does, need our, does not need our ambition. God does not need our ego. God does not need our pride. God does not need our methods. He does not need our opinions. He doesn't need us to sit here and scheme up a game plan on how we're going to advance the kingdom in this cause. He's already laid out his methods in his word. One of the things Satan must enjoy the most is influencing those whom the Lord has called out of the domain of darkness and have them abuse the kingdom of God by causing them to behave in a manner that is unfaithful to the king. Causing them to act just like the world, but in the name of Christ. So those who have been redeemed can turn around and still act like those who have not. Second main point this evening. This is a good point that uh, Michael Horton often makes. The kingdom that Christ is building is supernatural. In this kingdom, we see people who were once enemies now coming together through the preaching of the gospel, who now love one another. What did Christ teach about loving his enemies? He said, I say unto you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. This teaching of Jesus is completely antithetical to the world's system. Now notice what Jesus says here at the end of this. I'll read this again. He says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So he's tying the loving of enemies to sonship. Referring back to our relationship with the Lord and how we are to re represent him as his ambassadors. So the question is, if God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, who are we to wish them harm? If God demonstrates his universal mercy to all mankind, who are we to become bitter and angry with them? We can point out their sin real quick, but there was a time where we weren't redeemed when we were sinning just like that, if not worse. Now we become redeemed and we think we can develop a self-righteous attitude. But just because they're sinning, the Lord is still extending to them common grace. So if the Lord is blessing them, who are we not to show them grace as well? Who are we not to bring the gospel to them as well? It may seem like the world's methods of being stubborn, prideful, and forceful, angry, or dominant really do pay off. Or our own sinful nature can be persuaded to take up their weapons, to respond like they do. If we take that approach by responding evil with evil, we only show that we have more worldly power than they do. So if we think by force we can do this, or if we think if we can repay them back with evil, what are we showing? We're showing them that we're more worldly than they are. That's what we're showing them, that we have more of a world's ability to defeat them than they do. Is this being an ambassador for Christ? Is this something that we want to show the world? 
By demonstrating to them love, humility, and self-denial in the face of their evil, we show them that we excel them in spiritual matters. And this is the point we want to bring home. Where is this love coming from? Where is this genuine peace that you have comes from? I hear who you used to be. Now I see who you are now. How did that happen? Where did that come from? This is the type of grace that we want to be demonstrating. On the road, it's really easy to, to get into little skirmishes. I can remember I was driving a week ago on the highway here, and I was trying to let a guy come in, and I could see his face in his mirror. He was just screaming. He was just mad. He wanted me to pass him. So he looked really, really angry. So I, I, I passed. I, you know, I was going to let him in, but then I passed him. And as I passed, I said, sorry. And his whole face just drooped. And then when I passed him and he got in my lane, he was about a quarter mile back, just as calm as could be. So his face went from instant rage to instant calmness just by saying sorry. I just, I, 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 was just, I thought he was going to swear. He was so mad. And then his face just drooped, and his wife was in the car too. She, she felt bad. And then he just calmed down and just slowly drifted back in the lane. It's real easy to respond evil for evil. But when we um, bring forth grace and when we bring forth peace in those times of sincere and intense calamity, what the world sees is an ability and a real genuine spiritual characteristic that they don't have, that Christ has supernaturally placed in our hearts. And this is one of the means by which we can convey the truth and the genuineness of the gospel message. Last point this evening. The temptation to become bitter and act out of anger can be easily justified as we see our culture becoming more and more immoral and more and more antagonistic towards Christ. So the question is, is how do we fight back against this kingdom of darkness? There is a battle going on. We are not to remain silent. Paul said, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. We're called to fight, but not according to the principles of this world. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. There. There's the game plan. That's what he commands us to do. We are called to fight, but that's how we do it. We're wise, but we're innocent. We do have weapons. It's not guns. It's not axes. It's not baseball bats. The weapons are spiritual. They're not carnal. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So what is our weapon? Our weapon is the word. And it's through the preaching of the gospel where people are saved. It's through the preaching of the gospel where the spirit works to regenerate individuals' hearts. So our weapon is the word. Our methodology is to be smart and innocent and woe to us if we do not do this. This is our game plan. This is how we represent Christ. Lastly, this evening, if you turn to one more verse, 1 Peter chapter 3, and this will close. 1 Peter 3.15 Pretty much summarizes everything we covered tonight. It summarizes it up. A verse may, we may know very well. 1 Peter 3.15. It says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared 
to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that was within you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So the manner in which we engage this present culture is with gentleness and it's with respect. This reminds us that our defense to the gospel is not dependent upon our own will. The defense of the gospel is not dependent upon our own strength, not dependent upon our own ambition. Our success is not based upon anything that we can do. Rather, the defense recognizes Christ's lordship over all. That it is he who accomplishes his purposes through how he has ordained and through how he has desired. There is no room for us to be hostile. There is no room for us to be sarcastic. There is no room for us to be demeaning, to be disrespectful, to be making fun of people. That shouldn't even be existing within the Christian community. No matter what event has just taken place, no matter how bad things look, Christ is reigning on the throne. We serve him. We serve the king. Our, def our defense, the way we conduct ourselves, should re reflect Christ's sovereignty and our willingness to serve him. To be gentle and respectful does not eliminate boldness. Speaking the truth and boldness can go hand in hand with humility and meekness. There's a balance. We don't back off. We continue the gospel, but we don't do it with a twist. We don't do it with an edge to us. We do it out of gentleness. Boldness, then, simply put, is meek and gentle confidence in articulating what God has prescribed for us in his word. Let's pray. Father, we admit being called out of the domain of darkness and serving you as king, there are a lot of things that can antagonize us. There are a lot of things that can bring strife within us as we see a world becoming more and more immoral. Lord, it can lead us down to fleshly tendencies and sinful desires, Lord, that we may be able to rationalize as for your kingdom and for the good, but are actually contrary to your methods that you have prescribed for us. Lord, just help us examine ourselves deeply within our hearts. What controls our desires? What controls our emotions? What is it that we're after? Are we truly after a king, serving a king who's humble, who's meek, who prefers others before himself, who washes his own disciples' feet? Or are we pursuing a kingdom, Lord, where we put together in our old mind the old America or how kings of the past have done things? Or do we try to compromise by pragmatically putting together ways of advancing your kingdom that are not scriptural? Lord, we pray for our hearts. We pray for the sin that's within there. Lord, just cleanse us, purify us, conform us to your image. Help us, Lord, in the areas that we struggle with bitterness and responding evil for evil. Lord, help us see your face in all things, that we are an ambassador and a representative to you every single moment of the day. Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this time that you have ordained for get us to get together and to worship you. We ask all of this, Lord, in your son's name.